0: Hello and welcome to the D and D podcast. This is your host for this week, Bart Carroll, filling in for Greg Tito along with Trevor Kid. Hello, everybody. Uh, Greg Tito is out on vacation last week. I was the fill-in guest uh, and made allusions to possibly coming back. So. I was roped in for yet another podcast. Yeah, well, to, to be fair, there's actually
1: a Klingon job, job structure around here, and Bart murdered Tito so he could have his job. <laughs> we, talk, so, we talked
0: about that specifically, not mentioning that. Quote, unquote, that
2: vacation uh, over here. He ate <laughs> Tito. I saw the plate with Tito.
0: It was amazing, so. <laughs> and the voice you're hearing is our guest this week, John Darneal from The Mountain Goats and, of course, author of Wolf uh, in White Van and the recently released Universal Harvester. So welcome, John. So excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Great. So before we... We speak with John. We first want to discuss more Lore You Should Know.
3: Welcome to another edition of Lore You Should Know. I'm Greg Tito, and I'm joined by Matt Cernet. Howdy. How are you doing? Pretty good. We are missing Chris Perkins. Again. uh, Again this week, uh, but uh, he will return uh, from his, let's just say he's having a nap. (laughs) <laughs> a very long winter's <laughs> nap, uh, but uh, we miss him because uh, he often gives good old, little lore tidbits in this little segment. Uh, but uh, for this time, we will be talking about the hidden shrine of Chan Indeed, is that how you pronounce pronounced? Sure, go
4: for it. Okay, Chan Can. I don't know. <laughs> is it? A ch- it's C H, right? It is. Okay, it is. But it has a, a whole bunch of uh, names, you know, based on. Sort of Aztec Mayan something something <laughs> Az- Aztec Mayan, <laughs> right? It's Central America, yeah, me-
3: Mesoamerican, Mesoamerican. Something right right that was the term I was looking for. Right. Um, so this uh, this adventure is in Tales from the Yawning Portal. Uh, it's it is. one of the seven adventures included in there. So uh, we'll go into more depth about
4: uh, where this one first appeared. So this was a, a tournament game for Origins, and I want to say it was seventy nine. Okay, I'm not positive about that. Uh, and it was originally sort of just like a loose leafed uh, adventure, like in a bag. And uh, it was enti- it was titled something a slightly different. And I don't recall what that was, but like if you can find one of these loose leaf adventures in a bag kind of a thing, that's that's mucho. What do you tomorrow. mean in a bag? Like it was an actual like, 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 a, like bag? Like a plastic bag, I think. <laughs> yeah, Interesting. Because yeah. they like sold it out of the, the back of the car. I mean, it was just one of those things, it was a tournament adventure so they didn't really sell it. It was just for, oh, well, maybe they did, I don't know. But they, they um I mean, it was very early days. I mean, it was, right. you know, 79 and Origins, that was a small convention and it was a tournament play adventure and, Uh, The published version uh, is slightly different in that it gives you a sort of a a different starter uh, scenario potentially, Um, but it still has a lot of the tournament play elements of it. So like one of the the pages at the Wayback Adventure is a scoring sheet. um the tournament play Mm. and so you would you know go through um each room that the characters had gotten to and did they get the secret door behind the cat did they do this y and z they get so many points for that kind of a thing got it in addition to sort of the general premise for the the tournament play was um i think they had two hours to escape the dungeon once they were plunged into it and the idea is you're playing, I think it was three characters. There are three NPCs you were given, mm-hmm. and you're, you're dropped into the adventure. Uh, you're kind of like just standing on a hill somewhere, and you fall into it. And uh, the ranger uh, or barbarian, I forget which, um, says essentially, hey, we got to get out of here because there's poison gas. We can't stay here more than an hour or we'll start choking and dying. So let's, um, you know, or two hours, let's get out of here and they can't go back the way they came for some reason, so they have to wander <laughs> through the dungeon and hope there's a way out. Um, and uh, the published version offers an alternative means, in which is basically dig into the hill, just like two horrors. Oh, right? it's the same? <laughs> yeah, it's like dig your way into the hill for no reason and find <laughs> find an entrance that way. There was an X on the map <laughs> here. <laughs> right. It's got to be here somewhere. And your DM could allow you to, to do either way of getting in. I think probably most people just had the whole falling in scenario because that's more fun. But Yeah, like a sinkhole or something like that. It's yeah. at least a plausibility, right?
3: Yeah. Uh, and tournament play is always such a strange thing to consider. I mean, there's definitely, you know, uh, reminiscence of that in Adventurers League play and the actually the, the epic that we've run at uh, Origins for the for last year. Um, but uh, it's 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 odd to see this so many of these classic adventures that were so Ingrained
4: in people's ideas of what D and D was were these. Well, that's the reason why most of them got in, written initially was as, as tournament play. I mean, if they right. if they weren't sort of things that were Gary Gygax did for his home campaign, most of the time, a lot of these very early adventures were written for conventions for for people to play them at. And and so, um, you know, this one is a is a great example of it. And it's it's what to my mind is what's really fascinating about it is that it is I think probably the first adventure. I might be wrong about that, but probably the first adventure that doesn't really draw upon sort of, uh, you know, European Asian, mm. Egyptian myth. Uh, it's It's Mesoamerican and it uh, it's strange to me, it it is a um, almost Miyazaki movie experience Interesting. Uh, it's like this blend of Miyazaki, Indiana Jones and Mesoamerican myth like it is so bizarre. So there's a point in one point in the adventure where you um, you get to this room and there's a boulder and there's like a puddle of water in front of the boulder and, and there's like this little silver crayfish in the puddle of water in the boulder and it starts talking to you and basically yammering at you like not don't go any further or else and it starts you know wandering back and forth and it's like what what's talking crayfish what the hell <laughs> And uh, if you uh, basically decide to ignore the talking crayfish uh, or attack it or something, the boulder that is behind it rears up, and it's actually a giant hermit crab. And, and, it's, and, and the giant hermit crab, and the, which can also talk, uh, and the talking Makes crayfish <laughs> will, will then fight you, or you can kind of bargain with them or you know, to get by and so on. And, and then throughout the whole rest of the adventure, um, at least on the first level... Uh, there are a lot of scenarios, basically, where where the correct answer is don't touch anything, <laughs> don't 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 touch the treasure, don't touch the walls, just go to the next room, don't talk to that guy who's asleep over there and covered in dust, just keep going, don't touch anything. <laughs> so it's almost like it's it's the whole concept, it, like is trying to get out, and yeah. here
3: are some distractions. Right.
4: Exactly. Don't look at the distractions. But, uh, but I mean, uh, to my mind, really unfortunately and cruelly, it switches at a certain point where, where at a certain point then it becomes, I don't know whether to touch this or not. <laughs> <And> <laughs> so everything in the room is this big shiny red button and either it will cause doom and destruction or it is the only way out. And mm. the only way to learn that is press the button. And, and And in some cases it depends upon how you press the button. So, you know, if you sneak into the room, then maybe it's not as bad for you. Or mm-hmm. if only female characters enter the room versus male characters, then it's not as bad for you. Or you know, I mean weird. I mean in a, Really? Yeah. There's a there's scenarios that break down gender of yeah. players well, or I characters. Mean, in the original adventure, I'm not sure how much that was retained in the current uh, version in uh, Yawning Portal, but Tales from the Yawning Portal. Uh, but in the original venture, yes, there's very much a—there's uh, a Nereid uh, in there, and and she is uh, evil, beautiful, and um, there's—it specifically says that basically male characters can't attack her and view everything that she does as playful flirtation. I see. So, so very, very have, enlightened. Right. You have some heavy-hidden <laughs> uh, uh,
3: female barbarians to, to take yeah, over yeah. the, the well, play Well, thankfully, right
4: you were equipped in the original scenario uh, with one female character. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Interesting.
3: Well, yeah, and how much of the 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 Mesoamerican myth really does uh, figure into this as well?
4: Well, so there are a lot of elements that are uh, that are pulled in, but I don't know that anything is necessarily pulled in whole cloth. I I don't think that we were really getting a sense through this adventure of, um, you know, the stories of the a version of the stories of Thor and Odin and stuff like that, and like that you would. Find comprehensible even if you really knew Mesoamerican myth. I see. Um, I don't think the character names and so on are, are necessarily analogs to anything in particular, and the uh, the result in things that they do aren't necessarily analogs. And and then the rooms themselves are very different. There's a, there's a there's a fantastic room that you go into, and there's well there's a couple in the adventure rooms where basically it's like a weird miniature train set. Like mm. there's this diorama, and the whole room is a giant diorama of this landscape uh, and. There are deserts and forests and, uh, you know, a freezing area and all this kind of stuff. And, and different magical effects happen to you depending upon which area of the room you move through. Mm. So if you if you decide to wander across the toy desert area, you know, you get hit by the magical effect of the toy desert area. If you wander across the toy f- cold area, you get hit by, like, the, the cold metal or, or chill metal spell and stuff like that. It's very mm. strange. Um that's cool. But, you know, that, like reminds me of like a Indiana Jones kind of map room. Yeah, kind of it, it is very feel. reminiscent of that. And, and there's there's another room that has a, a sort of another, um, I, like I don't train set a diorama kind of a thing, and uh, with a totally different um, purpose and result. And you know, and it, you know, there are some rooms again where it's like uh, the thing that you you um, like feel like you want to play with either you should play with you shouldn't play with. Or if you play with it, it's kind of bad, but then you get a treasure. So, so, you know, there's a room where there's uh, like this giant eagle head, I think it is. um, And there is a huge uh, ring thing kind of stuck in its mouth. But if you reach in and grab it, uh, um, the mouth shuts in your arm and it does a little damage. and You get stuck for a while. And Eventually you can get the ring out, and the ring uh, is basically... Uh, a giant stone giant's earring or ring, and allows you to like cast stone to flesh or flesh to stone or something along those lines, and that's helpful for you later when you encounter something else in the adventure. Um, right. But that's an event, that's an example of like when the adventure says basically like it's okay to play with this thing, and we'll only punish you a little bit. Mm. And then at other times it's like, don't. Don't touch anything. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Don't talk to that person. Just ignore everything in the room. Don't look in those mirrors. <laughs> like, like Nothing good can happen from looking in mirrors in D&D. That's what I've learned. <laughs> <laughs> you just, you, the urge to check yourself out yeah, is yeah, there. No, we get no. it. But Even if you're fighting a Medusa, just close your eyes. <laughs> Don't use a mirror. Tried and true. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a, but it's 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 very strange and there's there's all kinds of strange uh, creatures. There's a um, there's a statue of and it, it specifically states the statue has uh, two extra sets of nipples and it's because <laughs> it's this male jaguar headed guy and for some reason it was important to emphasize the extra nipples. I don't know why. <laughs> and <laughs> maybe it just needed feel not right yeah, even more strange. so than a jaguar man and, did and so but actually it's uh, it's a jaguar man with uh, the statue spell cast permanently on him and then oh. uh, when you turn your back it turns into a were jaguar who attacks you and then you can kill the were jaguar but actually the were jaguar has had his heart stolen and put someplace else and so, in order to permanently kill a jaguar, you have to go and find its heart and kill and take it out of this other statue, or or thing that has its heart in it. And
3: uh, oh, so it's like one <laughs> of those ones where you're like trying to. F- <laughs> It it almost feel based on your description. Feels like those uh, you know uh, early '90s or late '80s uh, computer adventure games, where you're like you need to remember what was in your inventory and right. come up with the weird yes. ways with which to put it together and then solve the
4: problem. But you wouldn't know it if you weren't yeah. just like throwing every permutation at it. The best course of action is, I think, probably to turn yourself invisible and fly through the entire dungeon and try not to touch anything. And then you could get it done and like. 45 minutes. Yeah, you'd still want to run into some places where, you know, there's a giant stone something or other blocking your path or you have to claw out the the uh, um, sort of the the caulk from around X, Y, or Z in order to get through this gateway and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Yeah. I, I, I like the idea of having the, the time limit, though. Like, I feel like, I mean, it was
3: obviously there because of the tournament design. They wanted to make sure people could do it in two hours, uh, uh, but... It does add that level of like, you know, di- like a diehard or something like that. Yeah, like you know, yeah. you're just thrust into the situation. You have to get out of it.
4: And it was two hours of real time. And right. this was one of the first adventures with bo- with box text in it.
3: And oh, okay, that was th- we talked about the invention of box text. Yes. And this, that was this.
4: Yeah. And and the thing about it is that uh, it's a lot of box text a lot of mm. times. And so, um, I mean, an enormous amount. So, in uh, there was actually a, a fourth edition done <clears throat> of the adventure for organized play, and Stephen R- Randy McFarland did the, the translation of it, and uh, it cuts out a lot of. <laughs> 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 I'm sure it wasn't also a two-hour, you know, play thing. But uh, you know, I mean, there's a ton. I mean, and it's it's, it's a, these elaborate descriptions of of all these rooms with all these weird things in them. There's a room where. As I as alluded to earlier, there's, there's two sort of stone couches, and on them are two uh, lying down on them is a man and a woman who are covered in dust. And they're alive. I mean, they're, they're flesh and blood people, but they're covered in dust like they've been there for ages. Mm. And it's because they've literally been there for ages. And basically, it's a, it's a don't-touch-them room because if you interact with them at all, they wake up and attack you, and they can give you a hint about one of the later rooms, but they don't know anything else about the dungeon because mm. it's just been too long and they've forgotten and that's it. And that's it. And so there's, <laughs> in that case, there's very little reward to the risk. right? But there's a, you know, this giant block of box text describing this. So I can imagine, you know, the adventurers who are were, were trying to get through this thing in two hours just being like, okay, okay, come on, come on. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, I got it, got it, got it, got it. Like, I go. want that to him because he can talk fast. <laughs> <Right>. Yeah. <laughs> this <laughs> guy's like too Shakespearean for his own good. Yeah. You know, and, and then there will be like this big description of a room with all this complicated stuff in it and so on. And it'll, it'll the description will go on for a paragraph about like this, this table with two two crystal goblets on it and, you know, a pewter bowl or whatever it might be. And it turns out that those things on the table are completely pointless. They mm. have nothing to do with your ability to get through the adventure whatsoever. They have no – there's no bad side. There's no good side other than, hey, the worst XGP if you decide to leave the, the you know, dungeon with them. Um, so, like, it's, it's a very funny adventure. And, you know, I don't recall if you ever actually get out of the tomb. Like, I <laughs> – <laughs> It was just assumed that <laughs> yeah. everybody was going to die, and or <laughs> you know. Get and, uh, and, and how much stuff did you manage to get tick off your, you know, in the, in the boxes before you, you know, you eventually your time ran out and you just, you just died of <laughs> poison gas, <laughs> campaign killer, like. But, <laughs> you know, if you look at the adventure today, I think, and if you look at the conversion that we did, um, the. The sort of strange, uh, like I said, Miyazaki-esque aspects of it and the weird sort of uh, gods of this ancient Greyhawk culture um, and, you know, how you interact with them and stuff like that is is all, I think, still really fascinating, super fun, and just a very, very different uh, way to play D&D than Mm. anyone I think gets typically. Awesome, and I think uh, uh, the
3: version we have in Tales from the Yawning Portal uh, doesn't have a two-hour time limit, and the box text is probably reduced as well. Uh, I don't but maybe know. not. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Uh, but it comes out on uh, March twenty-fourth, and uh, hopefully, you can pick it up and take a look and and uh, infect some of your uh, uh, the, the the story ideas uh, and/or the dungeon itself into your campaign. I think
4: it'll be a lot of fun. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, Matt.
0: And that was lore You Should Know. Now we are very excited to speak with John Darneel. We, we, we already love John, by the way. We've had like a four-hour conversation with John.
1: so We're not going to share any of that cool stuff with you. We're just going to have the boring stuff. No, I'm joking. No, just just going to promote the please, new book. Please,
0: <laughs> uh, John, so you, you uh, were given a nickel tour of Wizards of the Coast. I hope uh, it was to your liking to some extent.
2: I, wish I, I, I assume you guys have security cameras, and I, you should have a look at the look on my face when I got in because I've been completely freaking out since I got here. It's like, I knew, I have have friends who who, have been here and who who are harder gamers than me, but it was like, this is like, I sort of, I knew it would be big, but there's, there's, I don't know if you know this, there's giant dragons all over here. It's really awesome. It's like,
0: I was going to say, we're recording on President's Day. I had to watch my son in the morning and bring him in in the afternoon. He's three and a half. And he had a very similar expression yeah, yeah, when, yeah. He, when he came in and saw the dragon in the It's
2: laundry. just, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's outstanding. It's when I, I was telling you earlier, when I was most into science fiction and fantasy it would have been 78, 79 when <laughs> I was 12 years old or so. And giant dragon statues like that would have been one guy's project in his backyard and all the neighbors thought he was crazy or whatever. So <laughs> you, know, like you, you didn't they were they were not in mass production. True. <laughs> True.
1: Well people people can go out and buy Mitzi. She's one of a one-of-a-kind, probably, but...
0: It, Mitzi's the name of our dragon. Is that
2: the red one? Yeah, yeah.
1: Yep. I'm not sure how she got the name Mitzi. I don't either. We should it. probably know that because we,
2: we work here and we've worked we here quite a while. Spout lore about that. How did she become Mitzi? <laughs> <laughs> what was her name All right, in the dragon
1: gonna, realm? We're
0: going to have to cover
2: that in the next lore <laughs> you Matt, Matt Cernit will yep. cover that. So,
0: so out of curiosity, how did you get your initial interest then in science fiction and fantasy back in 78,
2: 79? So I, I, I I think that the issue was my mom was uh, uh, she worked at the San Dimas Public Library uh, was the one where that she landed at after being a library aide around and that was the one where she was assistant uh, assistant in charge and then eventually librarian in charge and I think the way that I mean obviously my first entry was the Lion the Witch and the Wardrobe and nice. the Narnia books when I was. Uh, when I was in second and third or fourth grade. Mm-hmm. And I tried John Christopher. I wasn't ready for John Christopher, right? I loved the covers, though, and, and, and the tripods. They've, they, You remember John Christopher? And, uh, but I would go to the library with mom on Saturday uh, when when that was the babysitting. Like, mm-hmm. John will be happy at the library. I was a reading kid, right? And I would look around, and they had subscriptions to the magazine of fantasy and science fiction mm-hmm. and uh, Isaac Asimov's and Analog, all three of them, back issues dating back to what would have been the early 60s on on these. And I would comb through them and and really start you, two things, reading the stories and enjoying those, but also trying to figure out where you, where you align yourself with, you know, are you into the British New Wave? Are you a hard science fiction guy? Yeah. What do you really like? And all that stuff was really Interesting to me because I assumed that I wanted to be on the Vanguard stuff. Harlan Ellison was my favorite guy. Mm, mm -hmm. But then when I would read a Larry Niven book, right? Larry Niven is as normal as it gets. Larry Niven is not trying to be on the edge of stuff. But that one, Larry Niven, Jerry Pornell, what was it called? It had like a name like Juggernaut or something like that. It was about a comet hitting the earth. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just thought that was the best book. You You read Heinlein, you don't think you're a Heinlein guy. But his books are so good. You, know, <laughs> you don't learn until you are grown up. It's like, well, there's an ideology in these books. Whether you align with it or not is different. But, I mean, those are good books. You mm-hmm. know? So, so, yeah, that was, that was the first entry was hanging around the library and discovering that that was the area of the library I liked best. Yeah, the
0: character in uh, Wolf and White Van, uh, Sean Phillips, he's, he's very much a Conan fan, yes. Pulp Fiction was that in your wheelhouse as well, or just particular to that character?
2: So it, that was actually sort of—I wouldn't say wrestling with my own stuff, but it was—it was a way of sort of intersecting with my own story because I was a comic collector. I was collecting comics, maybe right around the same time that was happening. But I was big comics phase. Comics weren't the giant thing they were, but they were just about to—they were starting that climb with that X Men run. Uh, around X-Men 100 or something, which is a big a big deal, when suddenly they were becoming cool. Howard the Duck was what a lot of cool people read Steve Gerber books and stuff. Um, I was into Adam Warlock, that was my dude, <laughs> nice. um, and the Incredible Hulk. Um, uh, but but the, the issue where Warlock goes, spoiler alert here, goes, <laughs> goes back to the soul gem, right? It's the battle against Thanatos, mm-hmm. or against Thanos. Um, it, it's the most. I, mean, I cried. I was a kid. I was like, "Wow, wow this is amazing!" <laughs> like he, he chose to to go to the after afterlife, you know, and, and be free. It was amazing. Um, wait, I'm getting lost. What was the question? Um, oh, if if Conan was also right. one of uh, your so I couldn't relate story. to. I would see Conan, and it didn't look like it was my deal. You know, it was mm-hmm. a guy. One, he didn't have any magic, Right, right? Um, it, and, very
0: much the antithesis to magic,
2: right? Yeah, and just he's a, smash it exactly. He's a bodybuilder. I liked Hulk. But mm-hmm. Hulk is what's great about Hulk is he's both magic and not magic. He smashes everything, but he's also so character driven. Right? Conan didn't look like my deal, but you could not deny the cover art, right? You couldn't. Mm-hmm. De- you look at that, and if you like anything in the fantasy realm, you're gonna respond to to the side of the dude with the axe smashing through a room full of skulls and stuff like that. And uh, and I read the one novel Robert E Howard had one I think it was Skulls in the Stars I forget uh, whether that's it or not but, but there was one Conan full length novel I read that and I was like, well, that's pretty good you know <laughs> but then in the comics world there were those of us who collected and had opinions about series and about writers and about artists and then there were the Conan guys mm-hmm. who did not care about any of the <laughs> other stuff right they liked Conan maybe read Sonia right. <laughs> maybe Cull if you, if, you sure know, the, the sure, ones sure. who were way out there at the edge. But it was so interesting, like you'd meet the Conan guys. They were like the Glenn Danzig's of the comics world. They'd, they'd go in, grab the new Conan, grab the new Savage Sword, go up to the counter, out of here. Not interested in, in uh, uh, John Byrne, not interested in any of these guys. I don't <laughs> so, want to talk
1: to you about who you like or who yeah. you better I just want to grab this comic. <laughs> I am here to get these that I can only get
2: here. <laughs> so, so, yeah, but I wasn't, I wasn't a Conan guy, but I did read it because I felt like you needed to know Robert E. Howard's stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I liked it somewhat, but I needed more magic in my stuff. I, I, yes,
0: I, I was a similar way with Game of Thrones at first. I, yes. I picked up the book way back when, and I, I put them down for a bit, thinking, "Oh, I, I need more sword and sorcery in my fantasy." Yeah. Then when the HBO shows came back around, it was, "Oh, these are actually very fantastic." Stories. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, ha- I
2: have, I haven't done them, but I remember he was, he was a new name when I was a kid. He was like one, <laughs> one of the new kids. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I've said it in the office, and, I, and I've had this argument. I, I cannot read those books. I'm glad that
1: people like them. Uh, <laughs> I, I read a lot. I, it's just, I'm just. I'm too attached to my characters. Oh. It comes down to it. So <laughs> like, does he kill? Does he kill off all his guys? <laughs> it's something that he does a lot. of.
0: Right? <laughs> did you enjoy Rogue One?
2: <laughs> well, I actually kind of did. Well, that was a war, <laughs> that was a war movie, and I expected all those people. Uh, yeah, spoilers. <laughs> spoilers. Similar <laughs> <Spoilers. laughs> <Spoilers. laughs> uh, vein to, to Game of Thrones in some ways. The thing is, I actually haven't killed off any major characters. I don't think in any of my books. There's, I mean, in the new one, there's people who are already dead by the time they come on stage. But, but. Uh, But yeah, but generally speaking, for a guy who doesn't do that... I'm very open to having people kill off characters because yeah. like, I like I like that that wrenching feeling. You know?
0: So so speaking of the new book, it's Universal Harvester. It uh, has released as of last week. By the time of this recording, uh, could you give us a, b- a bit of an introduction? Uh, it's it's uh, set in the the Midwest. There is a, a mystery involving a videotape, and uh, and strange things
2: uh, follow from there. So Universal Harvester takes place in mainly in Nevada, Iowa, which is a town, a small town. It used to have a sign out in front of it said. You know, ranked 14th nicest small town in America or something like that. Wow! It's next to a town called Colo, where I used to live, which is a very small town. Uh, it was like seven. I, my joke: it's 775 people when we lived there, and 773 now. <laughs> <laughs> but Nevada is bigger than that. Nevada is like 24,000. I, I don't. I don't know, but it's a big enough town that you know it has bigger industries and uh,
0: just. And it's Nevada. Nevada, it's, not Nevada. Right,
2: it's not Nevada. I, I say at one point how to pronounce it in the book, but it's you can you can go right past it. You will probably say Nevada or Nevada. Most people will, but it's Nevada. Uh, it's one thing I liked about it. It's, like it's, it's got its own kind of lore. right? right. Like, I don't even know why it's Nevada. There's a town elsewhere in uh, Iowa called Madrid, spelled Madrid. Mm-hmm. Right? And, uh, so, uh, but yeah, so Jeremy is a young man in the late 90s working at a place called Video Hut. Uh, and uh, We've
1: already dated ourselves now because the video stores are gone. <laughs>
2: that's right. And that, that's right. And that's part of how I, how I wanted to, to go in like, these places that like, most many of us remember them. Mm-hmm. Those of us who don't still can picture them. Right? Mm-hmm. They're not... They're not you know, I don't know. They're not soda fountains, right? They're not something that people just can't even imagine. Um, but, but, yeah, people start bringing in tapes that they say there's something on the tape, and uh, there's some, some pretty unsettling scenes on there. So uh, a friend of his wants to investigate this. He doesn't. He's not a curious guy by nature. He doesn't think it's his business, um, but they do wind up investigating it, and we trace the histories of, of some people who are connected to this. Hmm. So, uh, spe- we kind of touched on that really briefly. There I- is there
0: a interest in sort of that sense of a bygone era in Wolf and White Van? Uh, Sean, the main character, is involved in play by mail RPGs, yes. and 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 in the new book, it's it's a video store from the nineties. Not completely antiquated, but you know, it's still it's, the past. Still yeah, the past. No, I
2: haven't done anything said in the present, yet, although this book ends in the present. It, mm-hmm. it ends. Uh, with some people running across some some tapes and having to to use them and it, it's the in in the last half of the new one uh last quarter of the new one uh a, a woman buys some old photography equipment because the photography store has no use for it anymore Nice. Um, yeah. so uh but yeah i i'm always you know I grew up reading when I was in high school, I read a lot of Faulkner, and Faulkner will get into your skull about the idea that the wh- the action is in the past right that's where because the past is infinite, so is the future right. The present has infinite possibilities, but it's not infinite, right? I can't write you in the present and give you some job you don't actually have unless it's an alternate universe. But with the past, you can go so many places. You can It's really its super infinite, and, and it's very generative. Mm-hmm. Especially, you can research it really well. Yeah. Right? At the present, mm-hmm. you have to do reporter stuff. You have to like, get on a plane and go, I don't want to leave the house anymore than anybody else does. Right? <laughs> so, so, uh, so, you know, it's like... Uh, with the past, you could do so much research, finding out the movies in the, in the part in the 70s when, uh, when Irene Sample and Lisa Sample go see the movies. We had to figure out what's the movie theater in Omaha that they go to and what would have been there for kids on that day, mm-hmm. right? And then, you go, know, well, actually movie theaters used to show movies a lot longer. The general release was a looser concept. Mm-hmm. You know, if you had a print, you screened it. I saw The Wizard of Oz in a movie theater in 72, right? Why? Yeah, you know, they had a copy of <laughs> – they, right. they had a print around. that it, it was touring for whatever reason, and so I saw it in a theater. And so, so yeah, I mean, now those would be called revival things. But before that, it was, I think, theaters, when there were more independent theaters, there were a lot of different ways to conceive of that. So and that's what I'm talking about, like these little pockets in the past that you can – that's not a super fascinating little factoid by itself, but it's stuff you can play with. It's stuff you can move pieces mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. with and think about, you know, what, what might happen. In that framework, so that's what—that's why I like the terrain of the past.
0: And the movie in question, it, it's targets, correct? It's this is the Bela, first one. Yeah. Bela is Lugosi is the, the uh, Boris Karloff. Boris
2: Karloff. Uh. So his swan song, his last uh, screen appearance. He shot it uh, with leg braces that you never see, and mm. and you can watch him and try and see him walking through leg braces. But he's a great actor, and he acts his way through wow. incredible pain. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. Is there a reason you chose that
0: particular movie for uh, the, the book?
2: Wanted Boris Karloff in there. there I, lo- we go. I love Boris. I'm a horror guy, and I just love Boris Karloff. He's so great. And I thought <clears throat> I wanted something that was one of those things where I was thinking, okay, well, here's this guy. It's the late 90s. It's a video store. What did I get that was kind of interesting from the actual Nevada store that we used to go to to rent those uh, Nintendo 64 cartridges? <laughs> right? Well, they had a game called Mischief Makers. Right. This is a hard game to find now. Right. It's a it's a it's not a great game, but it's part of what's great about it is like it's it's gameplay did not get generally assimilated. It's a weird (laughs) little thing. Right. And so so I was trying to think of what movies might conceivably have been in that store without having somebody watch a Fellini movie, you know, (laughs) because in those stores. To, there usually isn't a foreign film section. Mm-hmm. Right? Or if there is, it's got Gallipoli. It's got, <laughs> it's got, you know, some... some And some Merchant Ivory stuff, you know, stuff right. like that. But it probably doesn't have super artsy stuff. But Targets, that's from the era of the auteur 70s directors, Bogdanovich and these guys, you know. Those movies were actually movies people were watching. And so I thought, theoretically, Sarah Jane could order, order Targets. And then I, had, I wrote her character to be somebody who might have you know, once per order go, Well let me get a weird one. There are there are weird people everywhere, you know, and she's trying to also meet their needs.
0: I, I'm this <laughs> My wife and I have a ongoing list of things we're going to have to explain to our son. <laughs> uh, video stores being one of them, mm-hmm. where he's just not going to have any conception of. Yeah, like there's a physical artifact that you had to go and oh. it was finite <laughs> and yeah. it might be out. Like, what are you talking about?
1: I, I have a confession. I, I well, to everybody, I, I just finally for the first time uh, read Neuromancer. Uh, uh, oh, wow. and I'm, I'm read, gonna read the series. It's like, oh, this is a whole genre starting thing, basically, that I wanna, I wanna go check out. Um, and currently in the foreword, there's basically this like, hey, he's just, I uh, oh, forgot the writer's name.
2: It doesn't matter. Oh, I just thought of it. It's the, uh, William Gibson. William
1: Gibson. Yes, the, William Gibson. Thank you. And he's talking about, so, you know, I didn't think this was going to get this popular. This was right. my first, <laughs> first thing. And this was awesome. I also didn't realize that cell phones were going to be a thing. Like, he, he like because, you know, he, he went and talked about this awesome futuristic world and all this stuff, but there was actual, like, pay phones. Right. right. He's walking by and all the, and all this other stuff. And, and he's talking about, like, I wasn't quite pressured enough to, to get that part. I'm like, I don't. Think anybody blames you for that, right? But like, then you watch like movies based on it, like Johnny Mnemonic and things like that. The whole, the whole uh, cyberpunk genre, and like phones are everywhere. Like it wasn't, it wasn't just, it wasn't just the fact that he didn't think about it. It was like, no, this is kind of neat that we have all this older technology still sure. with this newer stuff. That's but funny it, though. What you just
2: said reminded me of that whole because in Get Smart, they had mobile phones. Right? Yes, in, in, they, there, there were other previous things. Well, where, but the, they were built into your shoe, though. That's right. <laughs> shoe phones. <laughs> so. So, uh, but yeah, no. My my five year old likes physical media. He like he likes things that spin. He likes uh, he likes CDs and and L- and LPs. In yes. fact, I I got him uh, I got him uh, a cheap turntable to work with because he was wrecking mine. But then he wrecked the <laughs> cheap one. That
1: I into, so. Just constantly buy cheap one. It's better than him wrecking yours, right? Yeah. That's- well, the
2: thing is, he tore the needle out of the thing, and so it's like I I gotta fix it. But you know, I I kind of like what do you. I can't fix that for you, buddy. I can't. There's nothing yeah. I can do It's like so. I put it in the basement. And it's down there for now. So, uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> so the Zuzu's pedals, uh, just daddy old, daddy old glue. Totally. But totally right
2: da- <laughs> well, the thing is, kids have so much now, right, that right? Like it's like he was a little upset that afternoon, but he's moved on. <laughs> it's like, I'm the only guy who remembers that. Yeah. <laughs> it, is, it, it is interesting to see like the things that we had
1: with ki- as kids that are, that are gone now, right? Like someone asked me about like what would you tell people about like uh, MUDs. Like mm-hmm. Muds and Mushes, like the whole like text based group thing where you're playing video games online, do you have to yeah, you know, yeah. call up to just to their site on your little dial in modem.
2: Pogs.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but but oddly enough, uh tabletop role playing games. Yes. You know, Dungeons and Dragons out in seventy uh, four and and obviously, we still very much, uh, fans and, and workers in the industry mm-hmm. love it very much, still extremely popular. Uh, so I suppose there are certain things that necessitate maybe a physical form in a lot of ways. I mean, mm-hmm. that can be augmented with with uh, digital tools and so on and so forth. Yeah, uh, my kid won't know a video store, right. but he'll want to hold a book. Yes, and and so he'll always know what a library is. Yeah,
2: you yeah, know, a book is permanent. So so is game, and game. I think video games are a subset of gaming, but they can't overtake gameplay because gameplay, especially among people who are in meat space, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's very old. It's like songs. Songs change a lot. Right, this, what we call songs today, unrecognizable to people hundred years ago. Right, but there's always going to be songs because songs have mm-hmm. been around since people were in caves. You know, and yeah, and so have games. Right, and so we know this that people play th- play things with rocks and sticks. It's like they want to do that.
0: So, so we were talking a bit before the uh, the podcast recording uh, as as part of the, the uh, interest in sci fi and fantasy. That was, uh, if if I'm not mistaken, your first foray into gaming as
2: well was around that era. Yes, I have my my uh, my shameful story of my attempt to play D&D <laughs> in 7th or 8th grade. Because uh, I knew it seemed like that seems like something I would be into in 7th or 8th grade. But I was going to say, the last chapter, Wolf and White Van, yes. there's a
0: character reading the Dungeon Master's Guide yeah, trying right. to that's parse right. out the,
2: the workings <laughs> of the game. But So the thing is, I was intimidated. I was something of a loner in the seventh and the eighth grade. I was like really kind of the loneliest. I didn't feel lonely because I had books, right? It's mm-hmm. like, but I spent my lunch hours with a uh, in at my junior high uh, on the bleachers with a girl named Teresa Liang, um, who. She would read, and I would read, and we did not converse. We would sit there and read books. I'd read my Ursula K. Le Guin books, mm-hmm. and we'd read and eat, and at the end of lunch, we'd say, well, see you tomorrow, right? And it was really one <laughs> well, of the gentlest best times of Now, I was there because out on the playground, I had bullies who were going to beat me up, and I didn't know how to deal with them, and yeah. so, so i just go hide, you know, and read. But it was fine. You know, it was like I didn't love the situation, but it was fine because I was reading a lot with somebody who didn't mind sitting reading quietly with me around this time. I see the D and D club. Right, so this sounds like something I would be into. You know, I'm into science fiction. I mean, I'm more into edgy science fiction than the dragon stuff at this point. But those kids were all good at math. <laughs> I was not. I was like I couldn't manage a C in biology for math problems. Right, I was like really not good at math, and I uh, had a block about it. And you know, I think the skill set that goes into specifically D and D, especially, it it's a little different from the fantasy set of just making stuff up, of just imagining. It, it involves a lot of imagination, but it also involves dice and numbers and memorization, mm-hmm. and like knowing what you know, to do, and it's being fast on your feet. And it also, this is my story that I always tell. So we were doing whatever. We were a crew, and I was ready. I'd rolled up my character. I loved rolling up a character. I loved <laughs> getting the stats, and I, you know, I loved the limitations. Like, oh, you, don't, you aren't actually very nimble. Your dexterity's poor. That's how it goes. It's like, I love this. So uh, we ran into a ghost fairly quickly. And I said, boy, I'm going to attack him. And the DM said, oh, you, you can't. I wouldn't do that. You won't be able to beat him. And I said, well, I mean, everybody's got a chance. Right. And he said, well, I, I mean, probably not. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, and I could feel the moral outrage. It's like, no, well, there has to be a metric by which I can beat this guy. But there was not. For my character at that stage in time, it was the same as going up against a tank. Right? Sure. It like so, uh-huh. I hit him once; nothing happened. He hit me once, and I died. And I went, "I am out." <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. So I didn't, I didn't play again until I was an adult. I, uh,
0: I guess which begs the question: why you were facing
2: a ghost in the first place? Then. Yeah. No, I don't know how he wound up. I was excited to see him. That was the other <laughs> thing. That ended so quickly. I was like, I really wanted. There to be more to it than sure, that, because yeah. the thing is, I love ghosts. I mean, I was like very excited to see this. Ghost. You were supposed to talk to the ghost, okay? I don't think the ghost. <laughs> I, I don't think our seventh grade DM was ready to script for the ghost. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I've thrown this thing up. Because you can't fight. Now, <laughs> now fight it. No, I think we were supposed to flee, and, and, I, and so. But instead, I was sacrificed. I just didn't go back. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that yeah, that is a tough challenge for the dungeon master. It's an intimidating encounter that you're not meant to face head on because yeah. we've ingrained yeah. players to think that, that. I mean, they're they're heroes. They're meant to be heroes. Right. Act mm-hmm. heroically, and it's it's a hard decision to say, not today. Mm-hmm. We're going to run for
1: a- this. There's two things there. Like I think it's an advanced player skill and an advanced DM thing too. Yeah. Like when you when you want to have a bad guy who scares the party off, but doesn't necessarily kill everybody or anybody even. Like that's a tough that's a tough thing. Yeah. Um, and then as a player to realize that it's okay to run away and then come back and fight this guy later, or this guy's going to be a recurring villain or something. Right. That's. You need to be more meta about your games than, than a new player is going to be.
0: I, I was reading uh, a blog, uh, an older blog post, I think from Creighton Broadhurst, where he was talking about the old Gygaxian mega dungeons, and back then... You knew what you were facing because if you wanted something harder, you would just go deeper down into right. the dungeon. Yeah. And that's where the tougher monsters were
2: going to When be. I think about this, I mean, like, this guy was... It was not an older kid or a teacher or anything, so my guess would be he was learning that too. Yeah, like, well, for sure. He's like, well, if your player dies, you know, now, you're, now you're down one player. Oh, yeah. and, so, <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing. In our own games, the weekly thing I go to, it's like, we try not to die. Right, no. we, try to, we, try to, <laughs> we try to fix it so that you can get injured, you can be down, but, of course, if your character dies... You know what are we going to do? You could be present as a ghost or right. I mean I, I don't mind becoming an NPC. I like to be a, a, a floating voice, but so, so that was your first experience with Dungeons and dragons yes. and,
0: and and clearly you, you've played uh, since, and, and yes you, you, you were not currently in a fifth edition campaign, but you have played fifth edition.: Yes, I correct? believe that's right, yeah okay. uh,
2: So what happened was I wrote Wolf and White Van," which is a book about uh, uh, a guy who designs a play by mail game, right. And I did a fair bit of research while I was writing. Mm-hmm. In fact, one thing I did, I had come up with the idea on an airplane for, uh, for the game, which is now called Trace Italian, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and it, it involves uh, getting to Kansas by means of a bunch of play-by-mail uh, turns, right? Huh. When you get to Kansas, you find the Trace Italian, Trace Italian or the Trace Italian is a medieval fortification that you dig in the earth, right? So this is an underworld Place we'd be safe from mutants and nuclear radiation and stuff. You're supposed to find the trace and get in there, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and then presumably encounter more opposition there. So, but originally it was called the Citadel. Until I was in Heathrow, and I discovered that Warhammer, the the company that runs it, is called Citadel. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay, cool. I got to change the name of my game. And so I looked up other medieval fortifications than a citadel, and I got a much better idea. So, uh, but yeah. So after I wrote it. Along the way, I think when it came out, I think my younger son was like three or my older son was three or four months old. We were doing the thing where you meet other parents. Mm -hmm. I'm a pretty solitary guy. Becoming a parent, actually, one great thing about it is you meet other people who are in the exact same position you are in, and it gives you an excuse to be social, which I need an excuse to do that or I'm not (laughs) going to do it. Right. Right. Uh, it's a
0: it's a misery loves company in, no, a lot it's, of, in it's, some way. It's great, and it's, I mean, it's so great because
2: it, like it means the thing you have to talk about, you already can relate, right? It's like, and so, so I met a, a guy named uh, Clinton Dreisbach who uh, who said, well, you know, I have a game playing group. If you wanted to, if you wanted to ever play, I told him the stories I just told you, and I said, sure. So, well, it was in. Rev- I think it was well, it was being revised, or shortly after it came out, mm-hmm. I started going to a weekly gaming thing. And when they found out I'd never played through, they took me on a campaign, and it was fun. <laughs> nice. So I was going to ask about the development of the the Trace
0: Italian, and it, yeah. it's a, it was a pretty well researched, it felt like play by mail yeah. system. Have had you thought about uh, creating game rules, mechanics on your own, play by mail or otherwise?
2: So not until I was writing it, but what I th- I mean, I was going backwards from from my character Sean Phillips, who is disfigured. He's hideously mm-hmm. disfigured. So I, and the first question I ask about my characters, or one of the first ones, is what do they do for a living? How do they make rent? Right. Um, I, I, to me that's just like a I can't imagine a character unless he has a job of some kind right and uh and I thought, well, he can't work retail I mean he could theoretically work retail, but then that the book will be about people's reactions to how he looks uh and uh and I thought, well, he wants to do something at home, but it's the 80s, mm-hmm. so he, you know, he tried multi level marketing. I don't want to write that book. <laughs> <And so laughs> I, not a call center. that yeah, he can, exactly. I was like trying to think, what can he do? You know, he could. He could be a preacher. I, I had a, a version of that where he gets involved with that right. in an early draft. And then on this airplane, I got this idea. I was like, well, what if he did some game the admin from home, mm-hmm. right? And I could have sworn that I had seen ads for something like it in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction when I was a kid, Mm -hmm. which, as it turned out, when I asked Jason Morningstar, I said, oh, yeah, there's at least one company left who I think is still around called Flying Buffalo Mm -hmm. who uh, – who still does that. Their website is operational, but when I tried to play one of the games, my email bounced. So (laughs) I was (laughs) grief-stricken. But I think their thing is actually computer-generated. Like, it's not... where Sean's game exists in filing cabinets. You send in a move, and he picks a corresponding response move, and they're all typewritten. And I love... You know, if you used to read the very... uh, uh, the small convention-only sort of science fiction and, and fantasy and horror zines... They would be typewritten, you know, right, and taken right. down to Kinkos and hand stapled mm-hmm. and stuff. And I just have such a fetish for those things. You know? <laughs> it's like they're 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 so they're so cool.
0: It's a very craftsman style approach yeah. to, to game and personal, a very personal approach to yeah, game. Yeah. Well,
2: there was that early edition of D and D that went for some crazy amount of money on eBay recently, right? And you look at it when you're seeing somebody's handiwork in something. Some of us see that and just our hearts just leap. Mm-hmm. There's something beautiful about a person harboring such a giant potential world and, and then making it a place where people can go. Mm-hmm.
0: No, I mean, that's one of the uh, privileges of working in a company like Wizards of the Coast is we get to help be involved in, in the creating of those worlds that we know so many people are, are uh, adventuring in as, as we speak. So it's, that's part of the excitement. It's
1: definitely one of the best parts of uh, on the DM side of things, right? When people are talking, and they're like, I want to I wanna make my own campaign world. I'm like, yes, I think you'll have so much more fun. If you just make your own world. And then they start going into all the different things because people approach it differently. Like someone's like, I want a really, you know, scientifically political world. And, and like, I want it to all be intrigue in the cities. And some people are like, I want to have all sorts of exploration and adventure going from one point to the other. So they're more worried about mapping stuff out and putting yeah. crazy, fantastic things in, in far off places. But uh, it's always great to see people getting to that point where like, wait, I could tell my own stories. Mm-hmm. And it's, mm-hmm. it's kind yeah. of it's a collaborative storytelling. You're telling it with, a, with the group, but you're making this world. That they're running around in and playing their game. And that's, yeah. I, I love it when people get to that point in their DMing part where, like, I want to make my own world. It's like, sweet, have fun. <laughs> yeah. it's, like, it's a lot of work, and we will totally be
0: here to help you. Uh, yeah, but it's super it's cool.
2: Awesome.
0: So, speaking of setting, between Wolf and White Van and Universal Harvester set in the Midwest, is there something inherently, I, I don't know, gothic? Fantastic uh, about uh, the Midwest for you as a, a setting for for the books.
2: I, I don't think so. Well, you know, Wolf of White Van is, is the West Coast. It, g- it goes to Kansas. Right. He, he's from Montclair, but you're right. As I hadn't even thought of that connection. Um, I, I will say uh, it's funny. So I lived in Iowa. For me, making Iowa a little gothic kind of involved gaming it a little bit because I don't cons- when I the first time I drove through Iowa in '95 when I first was moving to the Midwest. I saw the corn and I reacted like most people do: as you drive and you go. It's been nothing but this for 10 minutes now. It's been nothing but this for 20 minutes now. And if you grew up on the West Coast, where the, it's a coast right? coast, right? It's in the nature of coasts to just change as you go, right? And, uh, and that's how it is. If you drive up five, you, you go from you go through all kinds of stuff, right? Yeah. And, uh, but if you're going out 80 in the Midwest, it's corn, 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 soybeans, 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 corn, 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 <laughs> right? And it, it's mesmerizing. It's hypnotic. It's a flicker effect on your eyes. And it's beautiful, but it's also it just feels like you don't know and especially from the West Coast, you don't know anything about it. Right? You know nothing about it. You don't know how it got I mean, you know it grew, but it's awful orderly. That's pretty crazy, right? It's like, <laughs> you know, look at that. And 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 then, you know, and you go through in winter and then it's all gone, right? It looks like something came from space and just took it all away and, down no. and chewed it with its big, gnarly but extraordinarily uniform teeth. Right? <laughs> and uh and it's very, you know, it, it, it's scary not in a threatening way. It's just scary in a fun way. It's like, you go, this is weird. When you live there for a year, it's no longer weird. Right? Mm-hmm. But that first effect of going to the Midwest from the West Coast is like, there's no mountains. You can't find north without a compass because there's no, whereas where I grew up, you find Mount Baldy. There's the north. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like easy. And a lot, around here, you know, any place, you'd find Rainier. You, then you will know which way you're facing. Right. right. So, yeah. uh, Whereas in Iowa... I can't think of one landmark, what you would have to do is you would go, oh, OK, well, the West site of the grain elevator in town, that's it right there. So that must be West. <laughs> and so so uh, so, yeah, so I lived there for a while and you have that little effect when you first move there that I sort of preserved and kind of played with.
0: So, uh, unless I'm wrong, uh, this is the the, the early days of, of the tour for Universal Harvester.
2: Yeah, I did a week on the East Coast where I did Boston, D.C., <clears> and two nights in. Uh, let's see, Boston, D.C., two nights in New York. I feel like I'm shorting somebody there, but maybe not.
0: Um, and and where will you be going uh, after? This after is a Seattle, summer.
2: Portland, San Francisco, L.A. And then, in an order that I'm not sure of, Denver. Chicago and Ames, Iowa.
1: Oh wow! Is there
2: <laughs> is there a site people can check to find the dates that
1: you're going to be at those places? Or
2: yes, they can go to uh, mountain-goats.com. Mountain-goats. That's, that's right. <laughs> uh, or, or we got a Facebook page and they'll be up there. And also, um, uh, you can follow me on Twitter, and I'm always always saying where my stuff is going.
0: So we we obviously wanted to talk about the Universal Harvester, but of course we'd be remiss maybe not to ask about the the music. Of course. As a, from from the mountain goats and and uh, what else might be going on?
2: So we have been toiling in secret. Uh, oh, I uh, I in uh, for a while, uh, and, and we will be on. let's See, today is uh, this is going to air after <laughs> after this I happens. Know. I think so. Uh, so what's going to happen is I hope we have an album in the cans, as they say, uh, and uh, it was recorded at um, Blackbird Studio in Nashville, which is John hmm. and Martina McBride's studio. It's uh, Probably the best facility I've ever set foot inside. It's amazing. Their mic locker is so huge. <laughs> if you go to some place, you say, oh, I want to see 12. They go, well, we have three, but this one's not operational. They have like 24 of them. <laughs> right? I know this because we brought in twenty-four people from the Nashville Symphony Chorus to sing on one song, and they all got to have their own oh, C twelve. Wow. It was crazy, or a C twenty-four. I'm not sure. I'm, I, I, my my producer is a, a real gear guy, and I'm kind of just a I, I, you know I'm an acolyte in awe of all the all the cool <laughs> gear. But it's called Goths, and it's about gothic music. You know, uh, the '80s death rock and goth mm-hmm, stuff mm-hmm. that uh, that I was into when I was uh, for a brief while between like seventeen and twenty. And uh, I don't play any guitar on it, is the big news. I oh, mean, wow. play a Fender Rhodes the whole time.
0: Nice. So that is being announced
2: on Thursday. That is being announced on Thursday. Uh, by the time this airs, of course, the whole event will have taken the world by storm. There we go. Uh, but we're announcing it on Facebook Live. I'll be playing one of the songs on guitar and then pointing people to uh, a download of the actual track, uh, which has no guitars on it. That's crazy. <laughs> 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 Pretty proud of it. It's, we, we really... You know, you guys must know this is like as as what you do, you know, goes on in time, you face a choice whether to do what you know people already like about what you do or whether to grow. Right. Whether to whether to say, well, let me follow where my heart is leading me, but also be true to what what made people care about what I was talking about in the first place. Mm -hmm. It's like there's a balance to always be struck there, I feel. You know, I think there's some artists who just go, I'm just going to do whatever I want. But I mean, the people who have given freely of their attention and their hearts and their ears to me, super important to me. We're a community, you know, and so so uh, so it's exciting to be sharing this one because I do think they're the best. I mean, I always think my new one is the best. It's always the case. (laughs) But I think I really stretched to these songs and we and we've got a lot of different sounds on this stuff. I let Peter Hughes, my bassist, wrote. Uh, wrote the the coda of one of the songs. First time anybody besides me has written a single lyric on a Mountain goats record. Normally it's just me. And Peter wrote the the last verse to a song called Shelved. Um, and so I'm super super excited for people to hear it. Nice.
0: Yeah. Uh, and and as we are uh, as well. Uh, is is it a difficult transition maybe doing the two creative outlets if you're writing you know lyric writing for for music versus Switching to prose writing for, for your books? Or how, how does the creative process work for you?
2: I keep them in separate realms. I, uh, I have an office that I write prose in. and mm-hmm. I write on airplanes and in hotel rooms also. But at home, I no longer do prose, which... Part of that the reason I got the office was I have two kids now, right and the, I, I revised Wolf and White Van with a two year old rolling around on the drafts right <laughs> but now there 's two kids you can 't write a paragraph in that house. You can write a song because I can involve the kids in writing the song. If you listen to that Star Wars song I did yep. my dude is, is sitting there with me right? he 's like mm-hmm. he 's just enjoying it you know but when you 're writing prose when you're world, when you 're really world building you know it's, it's, it, it, you need some solitude for that and uh, uh, or you need actual collaboration, which with kids, it's more like the, the running interference. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah. So I go to the office to write prose. And, and also with songs, I've been doing it for so long now that I could like, you know. You know, Harlan Ellison used to write in bookstores. He would he would have an event where he'd be writing a short story in the story. You could watch him write. You weren't to bother him while he was doing it. And he would put up the pages that came out of the typewriter, right? I went and saw him do that at this Sherman Oaks store he used to to sometimes hang at. And uh and I could do that with a song. You could put a guitar in my hand. I could write a song in front of you right now. Right? But I couldn't really write much prose in front of you right now. <laughs> that, that's something you got to do by yourself. That,
0: that would be a bit of a challenge. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: Right. We were talking about this earlier in the hallway as well with the kids. Yeah, you yeah. Know, it depends on the bedtime. And then how much precious, precious time do and we I have? And I used
2: to back? work at night all the time. I mean, I do when I tour. Now we play at night. You know, but I used to write stuff all, at night all the time, and now it's like I wake up and I go get to work right now. You don't know how much of this day you're going to get. <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: I, I unfortunately feel like part of this podcast has been a moral against uh, the, the time constraints of small children, but there's uh, <laughs> well, two things. But, the, but, the things: time
1: constraints against small children, and if you're and if you're a young DD player, don't kill off your your, your player character. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> they, won't, they won't be able to deal with it. They just made their awesome character. Stop killing them. I right. think our message <laughs> today is
0: just let the ghost be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very, very much so. Uh, well, uh, John Dar- Darniel, we, again, are greatly honored that you uh, were able to, to join us uh, here. The honor was so much mine. It
2: is just so great to be here. As awesome. anyone outside can attest, I have taken pictures of everything. <laughs> uh,
0: so uh, for, for the new music, uh, take a look at it, uh, Facebook Live as of uh, Thursday. And uh, the new book is Universal Harvester out now as we speak yeah. and as we've noted uh, on the New York Times bestseller list as well Yes. Yeah, congr- very much thank congratulations thank
2: you so much it's a second one in a row and I'm incredibly floored and honored awesome. I keep time traveling back to my 12 year old self going check this out yes. <laughs>
4: <laughs>
1: alright thank you all for joining us for the awesome time with John Darnielle and the new lore You Should Know and thank you Bart for filling in such big shoes uh, in, the, in the Greg Tito department, he yeah. wears, like, size 15s or something. I was going like s- to make right. a clown shoe joke. Yeah, I, I don't know why he wears them. I don't, he, he thinks they're fashionable or something. I don't, I'm not sure what's going on. But no, but thank you. I always love the, the dulcet tones of, of Bart
0: <laughs> run, running things. Oh, much appreciated. So speaking of uh, John darniel and his book The Universal Harvester, uh, can you remember the last movie you rented from a video store? Oh, man. So I used to work at Blockbuster. So I'm going to count that. I don't... I don't know, so that's an interesting question then, because in the book, it revolves around a videotape that has a strange addition put onto it. Did you ever have a case of videos coming back where people <laughs> had altered them? Uh, and
1: I, I never saw one, but yeah, there were stories.
0: there were stories about those <laughs> kinds about, about those kinds of things
1: lovely for for sure <laughs> now I'm excited. I'm excited for the new book I, I I didn't realize it was so kind of like suspense just been thriller kind of stuff. Yeah, and
0: I, I highly recommend uh, Wolf and White Van. It's a, a very good read. Yeah.
1: I still think it's amazing that you were literally reading that when we started talking about interviewing with the podcast. Like, wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. wait. This is on my night's I'm, I'm reading this right now. Yes. I'm like, oh,
0: so you're going to do the interview and I'm just going to sit here listening and nod. <laughs> worked out pretty well. Uh, so uh, for folks looking to find out more about uh, D&D and the D&D podcast...
1: Yes, I guess you could look us up on Twitter. No, we're, we're at Wizards underscore d on Twitter. Uh, I am uh, at
0: the underscore Trevor underscore Kid And Bart? Uh, Bart, B-A-R-T underscore Carol, C-A-R-R-O-L-L. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Also look for it on the Dungeons & Dragons website, dnd.wizards.com.
1: Mm-hmm. And if you're looking for us on Facebook... Uh, it's just Dungeons and Dragons. It's pretty easy. And I guess you could, you know, we'll tell you that it's at Greg Tito if you want to talk to that guy, you know, whatever. <laughs> the guy with the big shoes. Yes, exactly.
0: Well, it was uh, a pleasure uh, working with you again, uh, Trevor. So thank you for having me on.
1: You're always good, Bart. And thank all of you for listening. You can always check out the little fiddly bits under the podcast on the webpage to find out more information like time when certain things happen in the podcast. So, and uh, always comment. Uh, talk to us on twitter let us know what you want to hear what you liked what you didn't and also if you could go over to where you ever you download this podcast and leave comments there uh, we definitely definitely appreciate those so thanks again thank you bart and we will uh talk to you all again in a week
0: that's great Until next time